You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Scott and Antonio, for those that haven't come across you before online, introduce yourself and tell our listeners what we're talking about today. Uh, Antonio Chacha, I am the CEO of 46 Brooklyn Research. I am the president of Three Axis Advisors. I also, in that capacity, serve as a senior advisor to a number of organizations like the American Pharmacists Association. I'm Scott Knorr. I'm the CEO of the American Pharmacists Association. Been here, I don't know, about 18 months-ish, somewhere around there. Last time we talked, Mike, I think we're talking about what are you going to do? And I think uh, we got some stuff I can talk to you about what we've been doing and where we're going. I was the president of our local association. It's one of those things where everybody else who was in the boards already run their turn and they said, well, ah, what the hell, let's give Kelzer a shot. But I enjoy having some camaraderie as an independent with the other pharmacies in town. And unfortunately, I enjoy it sometimes because when I feel like the ship is sinking, I can look at the other suckers that are going down with me and say, well, at least we're going down together. Now, when I look at the APHA, is this just a big group of people that can give me some solace Instead of going down in a rowboat, we're going down in the Titanic. Or do you have some things you're doing to stop that? Well, definitely, Mike. Good question. And we absolutely need to, to fundamentally change the, the payment model in the United States because we've been, we've been kind of going down in, in community pharmacy uh, for a long time. Now, it, with any industry, you've always got trailblazers and leaders who are doing good stuff. And uh, we're, we're making our, our way through that. And we'll talk a little bit more about how we're attempting to really uh, transform the, the payment model so that we can be remunerated for the right things and actually have the right incentives. Right now, as you know, Mike, uh, in community pharmacy, uh, whether it's independent or chain, it's because of PBMs and DIR fees and, and other things. Um, the remuneration has shrunk over over the years so much that, uh, you know, and, and all we're doing is running as fast as we can on the treadmill and, and manning the drive through window. So getting pharmacists paid for doing the right things uh, will allow us to, to do what we went to school for, you know, and then you can help manage my mom's diabetes and hypertension and, and keep patients healthy. But right now they're not paid for that. So we are running on the treadmill, but we got a lot of things in the works. Are there strength in numbers? Oh my God, yes. And I would say yes, yes, yes. Uh, and then probably yes. But, you know, we need to, to, to work together. And uh, that's both uh, having folks be members of organizations like APHA and uh, the organizations, the, the national organizations are really working with each other quite a bit. But, you know, we can't do it. Antonio is out there fighting the good fight. I'm fighting the good fight. Uh, but, you know, the, the more folks are out there and we're a membership organization, right? So without members, we aren't successful. And, and when we have more members, we can just really sort of blow it up and have a lot more people involved, a lot more people calling legislators and uh, and working it all over the place. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll build on that, Mike. When, you know, previously I was with the Ohio Pharmacists Association. It's where I got my start. And I can tell you that the profession of pharmacy uh, suffers from, from two main things. And one is, is that the profession is misunderstood and underappreciated. If you ask a layperson what a pharmacist does, you're going to get a very simple answer in return. Uh, they, you know, 
They check the medications is basically what you'll hear. Um, pharmacists obviously do a lot more than that. Because of that lack of that perception of, a, of a, a, mini, a minimal value relative to the actual value, pharmacists have a struggle in being a loud enough voice in a crowded room of other healthcare professionals whose value propositions are arguably better understood. Combine that with the fact that pharmacists suffer from, I, be, I believe, a very high degree of apathy. It's not just that they don't join APHA, it's that they don't join APHA, NCPA, their state organization, and so on and so on. So pharmacists in general, compared to other health professions, I mean, I used to see it all the time with the Dental Association. They've got joint rates of about 70 to 80% of their of their respective constituencies. Pharmacy, you're lucky to crack a third of all licensed pharmacists who are who belong to anything. And Tony, I'm going to maybe state the obvious that people will say, well, of course, it's independents would join because they have more autonomous care of their own self. And so they're going to do anything they can. And the chain pharmacies don't because they're not leading the store. And so they don't feel they have that connection. Is it that easy of an answer? Or is there more to why pharmacists are below the rates of dental and things like that? I'll start with that a little bit, Mike. And, and you know, we have seen an uh, increase in our numbers of, of pharmacists at APHA over the last couple of years. Uh, I like to think that, uh, you know, people are the message of, of what we're doing and actually accomplishing is, is resonating with people. But our my board is really diverse. You know, I've got some community pharmacy owners. I've got uh, people from academia. I've got, uh, you know, all kinds of pharmacists, uh, uh, you know, from, from various backgrounds. And uh, I think that's important. You know, we are the only organization that represents pharmacists in all practice settings. You know, the chain pharmacists too, Mike, I think they've just felt a lot of places, it's volume, it's stressful. You read about all the crazy stuff that's happening with, with vaccines and what our people are faced with and the increased volume. Uh, and I, you know, we're, we're doing a lot. I think uh, we're, we're seeing some folks respond to say, hey, you know, let's let's have a voice. Uh, we, we don't have to just take what's given to us and, and we can be a little more proactive. If this was high school, you guys would still be the new freshmen, maybe sophomores. Where were you the most naive, Scott, coming into this? And well, let's say you're a sophomore and Antonio's a freshman. Where were you most naive a year ago? What hit you slash maybe causing the most stress that you didn't think was going to cause that? A lot of folks really have no idea what, what organizations actually do. It took a little while to understand people's perspective, where they come from. Now... I think a lot of that, Mike, is is marketing 101, right? APHA is a great organization, has been for, you know, well over 100 years. They weren't real good at letting people know what they were doing, right? Mm. Uh, so I've taken a little bit different approach on that with uh, social media and, and all and doing podcasts. And I think folks are starting to see, you know, wow, wait a minute. These guys are doing a lot. They are advocating. Uh, they're, they're creating important uh, materials for us. So, uh, you know, it's a lot of why people don't know it's it's our own fault, right? You know, it's 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 marketing. You know, if, if people don't know, it didn't happen. And we all have to be easy on ourselves because social media relatively new in the scheme of things. Back in the day, if you wanted to promote yourself, you kind of had to preach to the choir almost. Yeah. Mike, if I was a if I was a freshman, uh, I'd like to say I was the freshman who came in with a little bit of facial hair starting to come in. I was I had the, I had the trash stash coming into uh, freshman year. 
you know, where I started was at the state level. And at the state level, I felt like the state is where you can get things done. You know, you mm. can make a good case. You can uh, you can push and you can uh, actually get things across the goal line. And and Scott, I, I think, would, would agree with this. And we were like, not that we were thinking that anything's easy because nothing's easy. Well, they're, we're like, eh, we'll take the Ohio playbook over to D.C. We'll fix all this stuff. We'll jam it down their throats and, you know, hey, everything will be just fine. The one thing that I've learned that uh, I think I wouldn't say I was naive about because I was already pessimistic about the federal government is that, you know, you were <laughs> <laughs> big time. <laughs> but uh the federal government is as sloth-like as you can imagine, and then some. Yeah, uh, It's as dysfunctional as you can imagine, and then some. And it is incredibly difficult to get things done at the federal level, which is why, regardless if we're talking pharmacy or anything else, you have to, um, back to your strength in numbers comment, it's really important uh, to have as many people activated as possible. It's really important to find a coalition of people to support endeavors. And it's really important to use media to your advantage to amplify issues that don't get enough attention. And then lastly, when all else fails, work really hard at the state level because you can drive momentum in, in places that are more functional to hopefully get momentum and push things at a, at a larger scale in DC. And we've seen success on that front. Uh, you know, Mike, I think the last time we talked, we talked about how, how unaware people were of what a PBM is, what a pharmacy benefit manager is, yeah. what a pharmacist can do as a clinical service. And and that's that's not the case anymore. The federal the, the folks at the federal level very much understand what PBMs are. They understand where the problems are. Uh, they also understand that pharmacists provide a much better value proposition than anyone would have, anyone would have assumed before the pandemic started. I know when I was watching Hamilton, I've with my family, I've dropped a boatload of money on that stupid musical. <laughs> it's like every time it comes to town, everybody in my family wants to go see the damn thing. It's like, it's on Disney now. Just watch it on Disney. <laughs> anyway, watching Hamilton, they said that one of the beauties of government, that the U.S. government is set up on purpose, checks and balances, slow. And that might be fine when you're talking about stuff like amendments and constitution stuff in that before all this stuff i think we get impatient you know when you're really talking about day-to-day -day businesses and and that kind of stuff yeah i think you're right mike and you know i'm, I'm actually to, to punish myself i I'm, I'm listening to the audiobook hamilton every time i get an airplane it's the super long one. Oh my god it's interesting the detail they go into about that guy's life but you know yes. uh, and being in dc you know so when i got there uh, i'd been there but never spent a lot of time there until i moved out there you know you go out to the founding fathers uh places you got uh, you know jefferson washington and uh and you see just how bright they were they, they'd seen where everyone else had failed mm -hmm. and that that you know big picture you're right it, it you know have and you can see it playing out right now right the supreme court they're talking to you know versus congress and the president yeah if any one of them gets too much power uh then you can go one way way too far and, and they do have checks and balance but yeah that does make things a little slower and i would say even worse than that is just how polarized our country is right now so uh you know if we had an effective uh, legislature, 
you know, we could actually pass some laws, but everything is so, you know, uh, right and left. And, and uh, it's, it's really, it's really sort of rough. So I, I'm glad we have that separation. And I think, I think the politicization uh, is so bad right now is what, what makes it challenging. Now, having said that, you know, government works slow. We, we're educating folks. You know, the, the, the lessons that we're seeing, and, you know, Antonio and I work together in Ohio uh, and, you know, got Medicaid to pay pharmacists. When you've got those examples to take, that's great. And we had some wins with the PrEP Act, you know, and that, that's the thing. So everyone's like, oh, the PrEP Act, pharmacists can vaccinate pediatric patients in every state and, and all things together. That didn't happen uh, by magic, right? APHA and other pharmacy organizations we're talking. My team talks to Health and Human Services at least weekly. I've had a couple calls with uh, Secretary Becerra myself. They they call us. Uh, you know this this thing with monoclonal antibodies. We were very very involved with with helping them get that. The White House calls my team uh, hmm. regularly, I, I, at least weekly. You know, you know, because you got a, a new White House, they reach out. Yeah. You know, you know so it's it's. It is. And so I was on with uh, the chair, Khan, of, of the FTC a couple calls. Recently, twice last month, I was personally uh, given wow. uh, you know, statements about the problems with vertical integration. You know, it used to be just insurance companies and PBMs and pharmacies, and now they're buying providers as well, you know, so so they're they're interested. So, you know, and people don't know that people, they, why would anyone know that, right? But, uh, exactly. you know, so the FTC reaches out, Health and Human Services constant calls with them. Elisa Bernstein, who runs my government affairs, is fantastic. She uh, worked for 31 years with the FDA, you know, had 450 people reporting to her. She knows everybody, you know, all the staffers, the political people change over every administration. Yeah. The staffers are the people who are actually paid to get things done. I guess that's a thing. I, I didn't really realize just how involved we were in trying to to get things moving. And, and that kind of goes back to the thing I said before. A lot of folks are like, pharmacy doesn't have one voice. I think we're a little bit more one voice than we used to be. I think, you know, APHA is seen now by a lot of our, a lot of folks, Health and Human Services, uh, as hey, these guys represent all of pharmacy, and uh, we're getting their attention. But we work with all those other organizations. I tell you, when COVID hit, every week, uh, Chad Wars, CEO of ASCP, hosts a meeting with all the all the different pharmacy CEOs and. We write letters together and we educate and, uh, you know, we put out op-eds and, and, you know, so pharmacy is doing a pretty good job, I think, uh, better than historic of working together. As individual pharmacists, I know I go through a lot of emotions. I go from anxiety someday to anger to depression. And that's just when I'm talking to my kids in the morning before work. No, just kidding. But you get all these emotions, you know. If I came to you with a real emotion meter and I said, Scott or Antonio, what do you feel like today because of this job? What emotion might you feel? I'm a doer and I like to get things done. So uh, frustration tends to be the one that, that hits me the most. You know, uh, you know, you think you got a bill almost introduced and, you know, you find out the AMA's screwing in the background and the other thing i gotta do is get over it right uh have my little pity party yeah. and then move on but i'd say that's the probably the thing uh i i honestly it's it's exhilarating it's ridiculously hard work but i love uh, being here and doing what i'm doing but uh certainly i get i get frustrated but uh but then i put on my big boy pants and keep moving how about you antonio i'm not very emotional uh but i will say there are there are really two things that um 
that get me there that the Italian starts to like boil inside. Uh, and one is people that um, are unnecessarily and undeservingly so territorial. Hmm. Mm. Um, a lot of dysfunction is protected by people that are protecting territory that they they have um, no business protecting. And I, I'll give you an example. We encounter this all the time, whether it's a government agency or an employer, where somebody somewhere is overseeing pharmacy benefits for that organization. And we all know that this system is very complicated. And I always, I, I often say it's, this is like playing chess against Bobby Fischer. You are supposed to lose this game, okay? Mm -hmm. But you have people that are overseeing it that either are trying hard or they are trying hard and failing or they're apathetic, whatever it is, okay? But for whatever reason, they're getting overcharged significantly within their pharmacy benefits. They're getting taken advantage of. But what they do is rather than open the door and say, help me out or somebody come in or you know, my broker screwing or a PBM screw, whatever it is, they're not willing to basically concede that perhaps something is awry. And so what they do is they cut, they, they bat, they bat down the hatches. They get in defense mode rather than opening up and saying, hey, you know what? It's understandable. This is, we're, we're being made to be exploited. Those things really bother me because they don't earn that territorialness. They don't, they don't get to be that way because they haven't deserved so. Is that pride? Is it lack of trust? Is it? It's pride. It's pride. I don't need someone coming and telling me this. It's pride. Yeah. We would all hate it, right? You know, somebody looking over your shoulder saying that something is, is, is wrong. The other thing that bothers me a lot is when somebody knows that something is wrong and they choose not to do anything about it or they pretend like it doesn't exist. And it's almost in the same bucket. But we encountered this in Ohio when, when the spread pricing problem occurred. And for those that you know didn't listen to the last podcast, in Ohio, we had a problem in our Medicaid managed care program where PBMs acting on behalf of the state's five Medicaid managed care plans were caught busted. They were busted because they were paying pharmacies very low. They were billing the state very high and pocketing the difference. Myself and my colleague at the time, Eric Packman, who you've had on the show before, we helped use data analytics to help uncover what turned out to be a $244 million gap that was living in between the transaction that PBOs were skimming off the top. We brought that stuff to state officials with the Columbus Dispatch and other state officials and they sat on it. They knew it was a problem. They didn't do anything about it. The problem for me was not that they were, you know, there was $244 million of waste, although pharmacy owners would say that was the problem. My problem was that they knew it was wrong. They knew it was going on. And rather than address it or admit to it, they covered it up. And so that's the stuff that bothers me. It's deception. When you're talking about the speed of the government, is that multiplied in the federal government? It is with an asterisk because the federal government is dealing with a lot of competing interests. And so let's let's use an example. Mike, if I was to give you a top five list of the things that bother you when you're on the counter as an independent pharmacy owner, my bet is one, two, three, four, and five would be DIR fees. Sure. Am I be correct? <laughs> That's right. Worse than fighting a monster is fighting a monster you don't even know what direction they're coming from that's correct and i can tell you the previous administration 
and the current administration knows and understands pharmacy's problem with DIR fees, but more broadly, they understand the overall problems with DIR fees and how they impact catastrophic coverage in government in the federal government spending, how it impacts a patient's out-of-pocket expenses. They understand that there's something very wrong there. But here is part of the problem, is that DIR fees in either entirety or more likely in a large proportionality are being used to offset member premiums, essentially artificially suppress them. So when more DIR is created, it is being used to pass along and artificially suppress premiums. What I just said is it is the sick subsidizing everybody. It's the exact opposite of the system is supposed to run. Mm. But CMS, HHS, they know this, but they are balancing that with politics because what happens if they get rid of DIR or they get rid of manufacturer rebates and they move them all to the point of sale. Well, now those things that have been used to artificially suppress premiums could be used to, and you get rid of them, premiums go up. And nobody wants to deal with the political bash, backlash of that possibility. So what does that create? It doesn't, I, cowardice could be, you could argue it's cowardice that they don't want to tackle it. But you could also say, it's just say, hey, why rock the boat? Let's keep status yeah. quo going. That's frustrating. That's that's obnoxious. But I wouldn't necessarily say that's as bad as, hey, I know that our state of Ohio is getting screwed and we're going to do nothing about it. You know, on that, Mike, you know, I think another big example with that, it's not the government. But um, from my experiences uh, at, at, at uh, Cleveland Clinic and really, I think all health systems, I think it translates into employers. Do you know in a major employer, I mean, pick one, I don't care, Microsoft or, or, or whoever, do you, do you know, uh, or pick a healthcare organization, you know, pick, pick a big health system. Do you know who at that health system is negotiating the contracts for who they choose as a, a PBM? Who do you think it is? What department? You think it's pharmacy that knows it? You think it's physicians? I'm going to guess it's somebody that can't see through the smoke and mirrors that the PBMs have put up. It's almost always HR. HR, what does HR know about a pharmacy benefit, right? So, so they're, they're not clinicians. Now they're not trying to do things wrong, but they have no idea. So, you know, we we're attempting, I was attempting before I left to kind of create my own PBM, but you know, just the, the lack of understanding. And then they get these rebate checks and it's like rebate crack to them and they don't understand the big picture. They don't understand that if we were to capture this own business within our health system, all this, we would control our spending so much. Uh, you know, is is yeah, it's to me it's it's much. So that's that's kind of what Antonio, I think, an example of fr it's frustration, and it's the, not the right people. I mean, pharmacy, that's what we do. I mean, we understand formulary, and we understand drugs, and we understand costs. Every every health system's got a P and T committee, right? You decide what you're what's on there for the most cost effective medications. PBMs are not incented to do that, right? They're incented to, to make more money. So, yeah, that's that's one of those crazy things that I learned the hard way that uh, the wrong people, and I guess it's because it's an employee benefit and benefits are HR, right? But to me, uh, that's, that's just, that's crazy. But it's almost universal. They might be the right people for their job, but they're making the wrong decisions. But here's a question for you. And we want the dirt on this, you guys. As you get into Washington... Are there some people in roles you shake your head and say, how the hell is that person in this job? Do you see a lot of like incompetence? Because I'm always thinking as levels go higher, you get people that sift out and you get better people up there. But do you ever see people that are just 
They have no business being there. Yes. <laughs> give me an example. We don't need names, but give me an example. I'll, 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 say, I'll say things that Scott's not allowed to say. Hey, you know, Frank's not here babysitting us this time, Scott. <laughs> Is he? He can't step on my foot. I'm not sure if that was for me or for you, but I think it was for you. I think it was for me. <laughs> but you don't have to have a babysitter anymore. Congratulations. <laughs> Mike, why do you think I'm here? <laughs> <laughs> and Tony, that's under other duties as a sign. Keep, keep Scott from saying too much. No, you know, Mike, there are, um, there are people, I'll, I'll put them in two buckets. There are those that have been there for a really long time and are understandably, they've been dragged. They are like they've just been beaten. Mm. They've been through these fights yes. a million times. Even though the issue changes and the arguments changes, it's the same ones. I'll equate it to when I was in college and I was bartending weddings. Okay. Once you go to a, once you work two or three of them, they're all the same. They're all the same. And so enough folks, I think, have been there for a long time, get really disenchanted mm. with the yeah. process. And so what they do is they just become bumps on a log. They, they stop listening. They stop engaging. They're just there. Those are very frustrating. We might see that as incompetence, but they might be either passive aggressive or have just given up or something. They may not be incompetent, but they're just they're not there. That's right. And the other the other the other kinds are folks who, who know better and um, and just don't put in the work. Yeah. Yeah, sure. There's there's incompetent people everywhere. Scott, don't twist this into the positive. It's not fun to sit here and listen to all the good things you say. We want the dirt. I, I know, I know. But Mike, you know, I, I'm, I'm honest here. A lot of the people we work with want to do the right thing. And, and maybe yeah. they got competing priorities. They got yeah. politics. But yeah, yeah, there's always incompetent dirt. But I, I swear to God, you know, we're working with folks. And again, Health and Human Services, the White House, the FTC, that I think want to do the right thing. And, and you know, again, they got competing priorities. You know, they're listening to us. But then they have to listen to the PBMs, too, you know, because they got to listen to everybody. And, and, you know, so I think, you know, I, I'm a little bit more optimistic. Um uh, yeah, it's making sausage, but you know, it's Mike. life is about relationships. You know what I mean? So, so you, you have to find people who are like-minded, who get it and you have to work around the incompetent folks, but yet you, you've got to connect with people and, and get them to, to see the light and want to change with you. But you, you can do that. You know, it's not easy. I'm kind of toying with you guys because I'm at the store every day and more so now in the last six months than ever I've heard complaints about our brothers and sisters over at the chain pharmacies, you know, for various reasons, overworked and understaffed and underpaid and all that kind of stuff. My first thing I say, and I just think it's a good marketing on my point. The first thing I say is those people are good pharmacists. You know, they're good people. They mean well, but you put enough stress on someone and you put them in a situation where they can't perform and they're going to look terrible. You know, there's some people that are just incompetent, but a lot of it's like we mentioned, you know, it might be whatever, burned out, whatever. It's not easy out there. We all went to pharmacy school, people who are, you know, uh, in, in jobs where they were stressed and, and some of those high volume stores, uh, Mike, and, you know, you know, they are, they are 
good folks. But, you know, that goes back to some of the things we're doing. And I, I like to think that I'm not so far out of it. You could say, yeah, Scott's in D.C., all that. But I'm really trying to stay in touch through my board, through my colleagues, through my friends. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of folks that um, are, are, you know, trying to do the right things. But, you know, it's 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 the incentives again. Right. It's the payment model. OK. Uh, you know, name a big chain, but they would have pharmacists doing the right things if they got paid for it, right? You know, so, and even the big companies that now the ones that are owned by PBMs and all that, there's clearly a misalignment of incentives, you know, but, uh, you know, for other folks, they're, they're working in, uh, you know, chains that the, the chains, they got to make money. Their mm -hmm. business. Okay. Now, you know, you'd like to think they also are ethical, but if they got paid for the right things, they would do it. You know, so back when we were, you know, uh, getting the, the PrEP Act stuff, you know, we were thrilled working with Health and Human Services when they said farmers can vaccinate pediatric patients in every state regardless of state law. You're giving each other high fives around the office, you know, at least and stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm hearing from folks like, Scott, how am I going to do that? You know, I'm filling X hundred prescriptions and now I got crying kids I got to give vaccinations to. Yep. And, you know, yeah. So, I mean, my, my girlfriend and I took her, her nine year-old daughter to get a vaccine uh, Ohio State pharmacy student you know a local community pharmacy oh my god she was good but that took work I mean you know uh, I mean good kid but was scared and was crying you know and and so the stresses but now by the way Ohio State's teaching something right because that that student was amazing but you know but you know, that's the kind of stuff that that's where sometimes policy and frontline disconnect so that's why it's so important for me to talk to people and understand what's going on what do you hear from pharmacists that you think is irrational or illogical or for whatever the reason? We won't judge, but oh, what the heck, whether it's selfishness or holding on to the past too much. What things do you hear from pharmacy as a group where you're like, come on, guys, not happening. Let's move on. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a, 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 a perfect example. You know, when we were uh, diagnosing a lot of the problems in Ohio with spread pricing, again, PBMs paying low, billing high, pocketing the yeah. difference. After spread pricing was banned, several pharmacies started to get increased reimbursements on a select number of medications. So, for example, a prescription for generic Levec um, went up about 1,762% in margin from the quarter that spread was banned to when it wasn't. So what was happening was PBMs, after they were told you can't take the $244 million in the gap, said, all right, we'll push that money downstream. And when they pushed it downstream, it just so happened that many of the medications that got the money were medications that were primarily filled through pharmacies owned by the PBMs themselves. So they essentially found a way to boomerang the money back to them by overpaying on select medications that were being funneled through their, their specialty pharmacies. We talk about that a lot today uh, as an issue called patient steering. So they overpay, they steer the patient, and then they capture the margin. Well, I had an independent owner in New York. I was giving a presentation to the Pharmacist Society of the State of New York. And an independent owner came up to me afterwards and said, you shouldn't talk about those things. You shouldn't hmm. talk about that overpaid generic Levec because, look, I made I made five thousand dollars on a single prescription for generic Levec, and I said, how much? What does the pharmacist cost to dispense? It's around ten bucks, 
Every state across the country shows the cost to fill a prescription is around 10 bucks. Now, look, let's just say it's it's a more expensive medication. Maybe there's a little higher cost to dispense because you got higher inventory, specialty product. Maybe you're calling Mrs. Jones to make sure she's okay, but it ain't $5,000 of a service, okay? And so what we're speaking to is a broken incentive because if, if, the, if that pharmacy owner, and look, I have full sympathy because that pharmacy owner has to deal with the $500 loss the $600 loss, the $100 loss, that $5,000 Gleevec is what's keeping the boat afloat. I understand that. But we can't sit here as, as a, you know, as people saying, hey, we want to change the system for the better and say, it's okay to have that poor incentive to over, to over dispense a $5,000 product while just basically giving all your other patients short shrift because they're a bunch of losers. What we should be saying is, is, Make the payment system agnostic from a drug category perspective. And if we want to incent pharmacists to do more, we do that through a separate clinical payment, whether it's through an MTM or an actual you know, billing code like any other medical provider. Yeah. But we should not agree with a system that arbitrarily can underpay 500 and then arbitrarily overpay 5,000. Like Antonio said, there's some stuff when you start looking under the hood that isn't right either. And we have to, you know, acknowledge that and we have to be open to, to fixing the whole system. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I've said about 5,000 times today, uh, our future, Mike, uh, is, is about payment reform and we've got to change the incentives. It seems with payment reform, it's all like chicken and a bunch of different eggs, you know? It's like, all right, Antonio, I'm not necessarily for the $5,000 upcharge, but it's like, I'll be damned if I'm, you know, if I'm a pharmacy talking who was maybe in that position, I'll be damned if I give that up though, before some of these improve, you know, and then they're not going to cut this price and only get it on the MTM unless this happens. Just so many chicken and eggs, aren't there? Totally. Uh, Mike, what, uh, I, I listened to your more recent podcast with Doug Hoy. Uh, and I thought Doug did an excellent job kind of underscoring the need for realigning the incentive model. And it's something that's, that it's, Scott talks about, you know, all the time is, is that, look, it's it, certainly it's a question of how much you're paid. Okay. But to me, it's more about how you're paid. And this is something, hmm. the conversation I have with uh, plan sponsors as well, you know, look, do you want your pharmacy to have those types of perverse incentives? Because if, if Mrs. Jones comes into Mike Kelzer's pharmacy with her generic Levec, you better believe Mike Kelzer's going to spend a lot of time with, with Mrs. Jones. She might even get a free gallon of milk on her way out the door. Um, That's right. But, you know, we want you to spend that extra time with a patient because you're actually bringing them to a, a to an achievable and, and desired goal from a payment standpoint. It shouldn't sure. just be based upon a roulette wheel of which patient walked through the door and got which prescriptions. So um, if we can realign that model, to your point, it shouldn't just be cut off the $5,000 script and leave everything yeah. else the way it is. It's right. creating a system that creates a, uh, it has a sustainable model for the dispensing function of the pharmacist, and then building added incentives on top of that. But you've got to create the concrete first. So this, so this is something we talk about with state Medicaid programs. Do you want your pharmacies to have this twisted incentive to to, to take care of one patient over another? Do you want them to have the lack of predictability because they're in these effective rate contracts where they're getting all this money taken back and they might get some, you know, added to their, added to their bank account? Do you want to create a system that is a basic and simple cost plus model where the pharmacist has a reliable margin over the acquisition cost of their product 
so they could serve each patient in an equitable manner and plan their business accordingly. And then once you have that system as trustworthy as it can be implemented within your practice or any other pharmacy practice, now we can talk about those other trinkets that we want to add onto there, whether it's immunizations, COVID testing, long-acting injectable products, MTM, ongoing chronic disease management. All of those things are possible, but no pharmacy owner can reasonably implement it with the chaos that is the bread and butter backbone of their practice, and that is the arbitrary PBM price setting for the dispensing of medications. In my simplistic mind, I'm just thinking, oh, okay, well, Antonio, that just hasn't happened yet, maybe because of the slowness of government and so on. But in the other part of my mind, I got to imagine there's someone fighting against this, the AMA and the PBM, whatever the hell their initials are or something else. Who's fighting against clearing this up? Because we know down to the wholesalers, they love smoke and mirrors. And I got to believe it's worse on the way up with the associations that maybe aren't on our side. With mystery comes margin. Yes. Those that profit off mystery are, are going to oppose. Yes. So obviously when we talk about moving to cost plus models in state Medicaid programs or in the commercial sector, the PBMs are, are a huge opponent to that because their ability to manufacture price is what allows them to make unnecessary and undue gains off that, off that price. Mm-hmm. So uh, major opposition from PBM associations and the PBMs themselves insurance companies and the insurance companies associations um, wholesalers less so I mean you would uh, you would I know a lot of pharmacy owners you know think you know kind of look down their nose at the at the wholesalers and granted there are problems there no question but I have not seen any even even close to the degree of opposition to pricing reforms in the drug channel uh, from wholesalers or anybody else compared to the insurers and PBMs Scott no, I, I absolutely, and you know, and I'm working. Uh, Antonio and I are working with uh, some coalitions to try to get some money to put toward legislation. And I found the, uh, you, you know, you you mentioned APCI, so I think some of the smaller wholesalers are very uh, out to help pharmacists, you know, get reimbursed for uh, the right things. Uh, and you know, we've we've had uh, all the major health wholesalers write pretty big checks to our coalition to try to get some provider status legislation passed. Now, Antonio, you mentioned insurance and sort of good and bad. You have had success in Ohio, and that's one of the reasons I brought you on uh, as my senior advisor. Insurance companies, while they may have departments that don't get rewarded, you know, you got the pharmacy benefit, but then you got the medical benefit, and and demonstrating the value. Insurance companies and PBMs are going to fight tooth and nail to protect, protect their ability to artificially create prices on the distribution side. So think about you know everything having to do with dispensing, because that's where their money is. But look to the other end of that business model. So insurance companies, if you, sit, if you were to sit down and say, what's the boardroom of a large insurance company look like? They got their PBM folks. They've got their you know plan sponsor folks. They've got their medical benefit folks, and their medical benefit could go from Medicaid, Medicare, commercial, okay? There's CEOs for each one of those sectors all sitting around that boardroom saying, here's how, here's what, here's how I did last quarter. Here's how I did. Here's how I did. Well, the Medicaid folks make money off of procuring Medicaid business in the states and managing an overall benefit for those Medicaid beneficiaries. 
let's look at them for the sake of this conversation. Their job is to attract Medicaid members, deliver a high standard of care, at least commensurate with what the state expects from a quality perspective. And then they also need to do so in an efficient way. Now, meeting Medicaid members where their needs are is very difficult because they are transient population often. They lack adequate resources to achieve the goals that they need. And so oftentimes getting a Medicaid beneficiary to the goals that they have from a health plan perspective requires constant interaction and check-ins and care that is offered close to home. Well, what the hell did I just explain except for pharmacy? Okay. Exactly. So when I sat down with executives from United Healthcare a couple years ago, you can imagine it was not a very friendly conversation at first because of all the work that we've been doing on PBMs. We said, let's take that conversation about the drug and put it off to the side, recognizing we will not find commonality most likely there. But let's talk about your problems. Let's talk about how you want to increase your enrollment. Let's talk about the members who aren't meeting their goals. Well, let me tell you about pharmacy, because while you have isolated the pharmacist under this pharmacy benefit and only looked at them primarily as a distributive mechanism for medications, I'm here to tell you that you have a mental health patient, a diabetic patient, a hypertension patient, a cancer patient, fill in the blank, that's walking through the doors of a healthcare facility. A pharmacy is a healthcare facility. They're walking through those doors at least once a month. You have the second most educated healthcare professional standing behind the counter. They are overworked, overburdened, and they don't have time to engage that patient. So what we do is we have a technician take the 15, 20 medications and slide them across the counter and say, see you next month. What if we press pause on that, on that interaction and took that second most educated healthcare professional out from behind the computer to talk to that patient to see how they're doing. Wellness check, check their levels, you name it, whatever it is, prompt them for a vaccination. We don't have that in the model today because it used to be built into a lucrative dispensing model, which no longer exists because of everything that we put off to the side. So the question is, you've got a member walking into that facility every month. Would you like to do something different? And everything opened up at that point. And so recognize it. while pharmacists might look at those logos and say, those are the bad guys, recognize that underneath those logos is a tree. And there's a lot of different branches that come off of that tree. The PBM is the largest branch, be clear. <laughs> and it can move the logo as a whole. Recognize the CEO of the Medicaid plan has totally different incentives than what the guys over at the PBM uh, are doing. And they have their own charge to the state because as we saw in Ohio, sometimes the PBM stuff can compromise the entire plan's existence in that state. Mm -hmm. And so the Medicaid CEO says, look, I understand they got to make Medicaid over. They got to make money over there. But what about us? And so it's not to say, that, look, the, the, the insurance companies are done taking advantage of the drug. But what I am saying is that there are opportunities to meet these insurers where their incentives meet ours. And pharmacists want to get paid more money to do better things for patients so they could actually have the time to spend with those patients. Well, who can do that? Insurance companies who need healthcare providers closer to the patient's home, who can help them meet their uh, healthcare and treatment goals. 
I'm really glad Antonio brought that up because this this really summarizes it up. It summarizes the strategy that that we're actually implementing. You know, it's three parts. It's all about payment reform, and and part of that is is the the PBMs and the DIR fees. And what Antonio just described is what I call compartmentalizing, because we're fighting PBMs for all those things for spread pricing for DIR fees. However. Okay, we will work with the insurance company that owns the PBM to pay for the right things, and and I have no problem, uh, you know, working with United Healthcare or any anybody that's going to pay pharmacists for the right things. We'll fight them in compartmentalizing. Mike, I think the analogy I, I use with that is me. Nobody likes all of Scott Canor, right? But you might like this or you might like that, but nobody likes all of me, you know. So I have to like everything about you to work with you. I just got I just got to work that's with right. what I like. You know, but but it is, it's it's three parts, and this is really important, okay? You hear a lot about provider status. That's federal, right? You understand that. That's Medicare. That's being recognized providers. But then it's 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 state by state, okay? That's, that's Ohio. That's why Antonio is here on this call with me, because we work together for that. And the third is it's, you can't do it without private insurance, right? So you have to have the value and the benefit. And I'm not aware of any other organization that gets that to the, to the degree that we are and that are executing. I mean, we're helping our states, you know, we're fighting the PBMs, we're working for federal legislation, and we are working with insurers uh, directly in, in attempting to get states that are, or then they're paying in some states to, to move that across uh, state lines. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's not rocket science, right? It's just, it's understanding the real issues. And you can get off on just, you know, PBMs suck, which they do and, and all that. But, but, you know, we have to really look deeper and say, what can we control? Continue to fight there, but, but try to move the needle on the, the payment reform, and that's the incentives. When I was talking to Doug from NCPA, I think it was he that had mentioned that, look, there's going to be a big company that's paying most of pharmacy. I mean, it's that way across everything. There's only so many people like Amazon. There's Amazon and Walmart and a couple others. I mean, there's always going to be a big company that conglomerates. So you're not going to like get rid of that. It's reform. And what I love hearing from you guys is as pharmacists, well, especially me, I like to bitch. I can bitch up a storm. That's cool. And I try to do something proactive with the beauty of the internet. You know, that's kind of why I did the podcast, you know, to get my voice heard and so on. But you just feel like you're little islands. But perhaps in my own little way, I've connected with you guys and and you're listening and to all of us, this is just symbolic of that, but you're listening and you're taking it to some place that I really can't go. I mean, I can go maybe podcast wiser, but I'm not going to sit in the meeting with these guys or go to lunch with them in DC and things like that. So it's a beautiful network and that's the importance of these organizations. Well, Mike, you know, going back to your earlier Hamilton reference, right? I mean, that way you can kind of be in the room where it happens. Yes, exactly. Through influence and talking to folks, you know, which is very, very important. I don't know the history of the pharmacy organizations. Did it take a lot of work for you guys to come together? Did you ever consider yourself like competitors among the other associations? Do you feel like you're working better than you have in the past or has it always been a pretty good relationship? And if it has changed, how did that change? Yeah, you know, I've only been in this role for a year and a half or so. Um, you know, philosophically with me, I will work with, uh, you know, all those organizations, you know, 
APHA was the original pharmacy organization, so everybody at some point sort of, you know, split off from, from APHA. What we're doing now is having people come back, and we work really well. I mean, Doug's a great guy. You know, a lot of his members are, are my members as well. So Doug uh, was out front on, on PBM reform. APHA never really was into PBM reform until I showed up with Antonio, mm. and they were like, yeah, we get this. I had $6.5 million stolen from Cleveland Clinic and DIR yeah, fees, you right. know? So, so we, uh, quite frankly, we just, Doug had a good strategy. He, he said, Hey, Scott, when join him, I'm like, well, these are good things. So, you know, he was leading the Rutledge versus PCMA. We filed an amicus brief. He called, uh, this one's a little bit more expensive. You know, we're suing health and human services. A lot of people know that's NCPA versus Becerra, but he asked, we're, we're funding 50% of that. Mm. I mean, we're spending hundreds of thousands of APHA dollars uh, to, to fund that working together. We jointly introduced a, a DIR bill. And then, uh, you know, we filed an amicus brief for North, North Dakota Farmers Association. Uh, so those are all things that we're doing together. Uh, but I, you know, that's, that's uh, I'm working with Doug because that's his members, his board members are passionate about that. I'm working with other organizations, you know, with ASHP, the, the our two organizations um, got the bill introduced for the uh, underserved areas, right? Now, lots of other folks are involved and in, in signing on to that. But, uh, you know, we work with, you know, every pharmacy organization uh, out there on, on something, almost every pharmacy organization. Organization. So I think uh, the the relationships are, are good. I don't know if there's ever animus. I, I don't know. Uh, there either might people. I don't see Doug as a competitor. I see him as a synergist. I want people to be uh, NCPA members and APHA members because you know both of our organizations have different angles and how we're doing things. We work together on some things. Some things Doug's board doesn't care about that we're doing. It's not that they're not the right things. It's just they're not important to his board. Some things for ashp or, or not important to, to other organizations you know if it's a pharmacy issue it's important to apha so i work with every other pharmacy organization do you see most pharmacy organizations even though they may not support something at all officially do you see any of the associations that don't agree inherently with anything it seems like everybody's kind of on the same page is there anything that maybe a group doesn't agree with another group on in theory Mostly, mostly same page. You know, there, there, uh, there's one group that, uh, you know, is related to provider status. Uh, I'm not going to name names. You're a smart guy. You might be able to figure it out, but I'm not going to throw stones. But uh, there's one organization that, that apparently believes you have to have a PGY-7 in order to talk to a patient. And they, they, don't, they don't support provider status. I obviously exaggerate for effect. There's organizations that think you need more education before you can even do it? Well, and I, I like to exaggerate for effect. So I, I have uh, two residencies. I've combined. So PGY one. That's okay. You get your PharmD. Postgraduate year one is is a, a, a residency. PGY one. And then usually uh, some people can do a specialty. So if you want to do a general PGY one, and then you want to do oncology, that's a PGY two. That's the most that exists. Now, I, you know, some of our clinical brethren uh, sometimes think that they're the only ones that really understand patient care and those, those community pharmacists, they can do that, but they don't, you know. So there was one organization that uh, did not and does not support pharmacy provider status because they believe uh, you have to be one of them in order to talk to a mm -hmm. patient. I exaggerate for a fact, but so when you said most people, most organizations, 
agree on everything. Yeah, I think most and now some care more about some stuff, so they put their resources toward it. Yeah, uh, this is one area where there's, like I said, one one pharmacy professional society that I vigorously disagree with. I think every pharmacist out there. I mean, you know, we've been all PharmD since what to the ninety nine, and before that, anyone that was a graduate before has what. 30 some yeah. years of experience. I could do the math. I'm not good at math. So I, I, our community pharmacists can provide clinical care. And so, so when folks say you have to have this residency, you know, now if you're, you know, my previous place, Cleveland clinic, number one heart hospital in the world. Yeah. You probably need some specialized training, uh, to, to, to work in the cardiac ICU, but yeah, that's just me, uh, getting worked up over folks that think that our pharmacists on the front lines, uh, can only dispense drugs. And that just, that just grates my butt, you know? So sorry, I get a little worked up. All right, guys. So devil's advocate here. You're now the high and mighty in Washington, DC, and you've lost touch with us little people. And so, yes, maybe it's good that pharmacists should join APHA, but the leaders now are losing touch. It's all theory and so now we got to start over with some grassroots organization or something like that. Antonio, true? No, definitely not. I, I, this is something I actually talked about at the state level because we had some pharmacists that were that thought, okay, Ohio Pharmacists Association, they don't represent me or they don't do a good enough job, whatever it is. They think that, you know, we've got the magic solution locked up in a storage closet somewhere and we're just unwilling to use it. Uh, and they think, well, look, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll get it. I'll get it done. I'll figure it out. I know, I know what's going on. I'll do it better than the folks in Ohio. And, and to which I would say, look, if you think you're going to go change the world for in pharmacy, okay. And this isn't say you can't do it. I'm just going to say your chances are very low. All right. If you can't actually be involved within the Ohio Pharmacists Association, which is very easy to get involved in, volunteer, join a committee, then maybe even join a board. If you can't even convince your own peers in that intimate setting within your own profession that you're right, good luck doing it outside of it. (laughs) You're not going to. You're not going to. Absolutely. Mike, I got some thoughts on that too. You know, uh, some organizations, and that happens in, in professional organizations, sometimes uh, organizations run on inertia and all the organization cares about is for the organization to be successful. Mm. That's not the way I think. You know, if we're not advocating for patients, you know, that's not good. But I, I also have a very strong board of directors that hired me. I talked about the diversity. You know, I have a Kroger executive. I have a couple independent pharmacies. Mm. I got College of Pharmacy. They know the real issues, right? We just had a, a board finance meeting. I learned so much; it keeps me sharp. Plus, you know, my girlfriend she's she's a pharmacy leader. She's practicing. Uh, I talked to, to you know folks. I did my midwestern tour. I, I visited I don't know countless uh, you know pharmacies. Um, you know, so it's yeah. And do you want me filling scripts? Uh, you don't want me as your oncology specialist at NIH, uh, but but I, I get it, you know, and I feel the pain. So. I understand what our, our folks are going through. I mean, we got these crazies, my God, uh, telling pharmacists, oh, granted, that's mental health, but you know, that they're war criminals for dispensing, they're for uh, immunizing. And that one guy in Maryland, I mean, his brother-in-law again, 
clearly insane, but, but shot him. I mean, yes. our front lines, you know, it's just, it's crazy stuff. So, uh, I never want to be so far from removed where, where I don't get it. And the other thing with me, Mike, you know, I, I got a five-year contract here, uh, you know, you, you know, assuming I'm, I'm doing well and we like each other, I'll do another five, another five-year contract. But, you know, some folks get into a position and they're playing defense. Okay. All they want to do is not get yeah. fired. That's not me. If I ever play defense, just shoot me in the head. I want to drive as hard and fast as I can all the time. So as long as I'm here at APHA, we're going to be looking out for our patients and for our pharmacists, our profession, and, and society. There's no slowing down and no worrying about, ooh, I don't want to do that. I might upset someone and ruffle some feathers. Because if I can't be effective in my role, find someone else. I'm hoping to get fired from my pharmacy. <laughs> I got to hire like a board that will oust me. I need a uh, insurgents to, <laughs> to get rid of me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I follow this psychologist online and his big thing is clean your room. That's where you start. That's where the change happens. Everybody wants to change the world, but no one wants to help mom with the dishes. Yeah, exactly. Mike, so you're in Michigan, right? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I hope to meet you in person. The Michigan Pharmacists Association uh, is, I think, February. I know it's winter. I'm going to be the keynote speaker. Oh, you are. Pharmacists Association. Yeah, so if you get there, because how can I turn it down? Detroit in February, for God's sake. <laughs> of course, where else would I rather be? <laughs> My dad always had insurance friends. They're having their annual meeting in Hawaii. It's like, why don't they go to Detroit in February? I think you were listening into my dad's conversation. Well, it's fun. I'm a car guy, right? So I was uh, when I was in Cleveland, I'd always go to the Detroit Auto Show. And finally, of course, they had because of COVID there. But finally, now they changed it to June because January in Detroit was, you know, it's like, hey, I love cars a lot. You know, so I went. But thank God. Is that something that's good for you to do? How often do you get invited to those? Oh, I love them. Uh, there's nothing I'd rather do. I, I, I've probably spoken at 20 state. You know, most of them have been virtual. Oh, yeah. But I'm starting to do them live again. You know, and again, that's a way to connect with members. I, the Florida Pharmacy Association was probably the first in-person one. And, and you know, when I'm new, everyone's like, oh, the new guy, just like you, right, with the podcast. Now everyone's probably tired of me. But, uh, you know, but at least at first they wanted, wanted me to talk. So I'm looking forward to the Michigan Pharmacy Association. You're doing great things. Keep it up. Thank you, Mike. I'll keep listening to your stuff. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.